I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is an apostrophe podcast production. We regret to inform you, the Rejection Podcast. I was devastated, convinced that I simply didn't have what it takes to be a star. Taraji P. Henson. Taraji Penda Henson says she doesn't recall much from her childhood, but there's one day that she remembers so clearly, it's like it was yesterday. When she was five years old, she was sitting in her kindergarten classroom in Washington, D.C., when the teacher announced they'd be putting on a showcase for their parents. Three students would be selected to sing The Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow from Annie, and five-year-old Henson was one of those three. On the day of the performance, Henson walked up to the mic and stood in front of an audience for the first time. And as the music started to play, she felt everyone's eyes on her. So as she sang, she did a quirky little dance move. And the audience laughed. She said she realized in that moment that when you're performing, you hold the emotions of an entire room in the palm of your hand. That the simplest of actions can evoke a reaction from a crowd. And she loved the attention. With that boost, Henson started performing at home and taking requests from her family. As her parents, siblings, and grandparents sat on the couch in their living room, little Henson would stand up front eager to perform any suggestion they threw her way. Sometimes they'd request a poem, a bit, or a cheer, and she would come up with something on the spot. Henson later said it was a magical feeling, and from then on, she knew. She'd been bitten by the acting bug. Growing up in Southeast D.C. was not easy. At a young age, Henson's parents divorced. Her now single mother found a job at a local department store and moved with the kids into the best place she could afford, a seedy, run-down apartment complex. 
Henson can remember several times when they were robbed or mugged coming home. Her father took up a gig installing security bars on the windows and doors of local houses, but eventually he fell into homelessness. By elementary school, Henson began acting out. Maybe because there was a lot going on at home, but mostly because she says she was just a naturally rambunctious, outspoken kid. She attended some pretty tough schools where most students came from even tougher home situations, largely stemming from DC's 80s crack epidemic. There was little funding for supplies or textbooks and little square bulletproof windows in the walls. Henson later said hardly anyone ever encourages the child who can't sit still or talks too much or lets their imagination soar. The very foundations of her identity. She had to learn the hard way to become more restrained because when she didn't, she got a ruler to the knuckles and a stern talking to from her teachers. Despite growing up on the same blocks and apartment complexes as her peers, Henson couldn't help but feel that she didn't fit in. Her mother did everything in her power to make sure the drugs on the other side of their paper-thin walls seemed a world away. Henson never went to school hungry or abused. She was lucky to have parents who had the capacity to encourage her interest in the arts because everywhere around her, she says people were too busy hustling to be dreaming. In 1980, Henson discovered fame, the movie, and first laid eyes on Debbie Allen. Allen's part in the film as Lydia the dance teacher was small, but it had a huge impact on Henson. She practiced Allen's choreography in the mirror every single day. Henson says she would often get lost in music, Imagining the little girl staring back at her, smiling and singing hard with those great big eyes was famous. Two years later, she realized she wasn't the only one mesmerized by Lydia. In 1982, the television show Fame premiered. Like the movie, it followed a group of students attending a performing arts high school in New York in pursuit of, well, fame. But this time, Alan was the star proving there are no small roles. And every Thursday, after she'd rushed through her homework and chores, Henson would park herself in front of the TV set just in time for the opening credits. That's when Alan would say the famous line, you want fame? Well, fame costs. And right here is where you start paying, in sweat. Those words permeated Henson's psyche. From that moment on, she wasn't just watching Debbie Allen. She was studying her. Henson continued her silver screen education by pouring over I Love Lucy reruns, marveling at Lucille Ball's masterful facial expressions and physical comedy. She discovered Carol Burnett, who Henson later said in her memoir gave her one very specific aspiration to get lost pretending to be someone else. Then, the biggest series of the decade, The Cosby Show. A role like Claire Huxtable, AKA Felicia Rashad, became her benchmark for success. Sensing Henson's ambition, her aunt and godmother pooled what little money they had to pay for her to attend acting classes one summer at the Kennedy Center. Henson says it took a village to get her up onto a stage, but only seconds for her to fall in love with everything about being there. The collaborative nature of productions, memorizing lines, the lights, the audience, and most of all, the applause. And there was one person in particular whose voice cut through the cheers at all her performances, her father. Over the years, he started getting back on his feet. He became a part-time janitor and a full-time Taraji P. Henson cheerleader. He would tell her that to him, she already had the glory and the Oscar. Right now, she was just going through the motions. He told her to stay on her path and know she was going to become 
the greatest actor alive. Henson made a friend named Tracy at school, and together the pair decided they would become movie stars. So they took part in local productions, like playing witches in Macbeth at a Shakespeare festival. They even won awards for their performance, which spurred them on to find more opportunities. But in class, Henson was bored. She wanted to be singing and dancing and moving and talking. Instead, she had to sit still in her seat and play the role of obedient student. So she became the class clown. And while most of the time it resulted in sore knuckles, one teacher took a different approach. Rather than disciplining Henson or sending the dreaded note home to her parents, she saw her behavior not as delinquent, but as pent-up creative energy with no constructive outlet. So the teacher decided to help Henson and recommended she and Tracy compete in a local, talented teens pageant show. And while most talented teens in the area were flaunting their flute, tap dancing, or baton twirling skills, Henson decided to showcase what she did best, acting. And what better way to show the judges what she's got than to write her very own dramatic monologue. On the night of the talent show, Henson was cool as a cucumber. She had her monologue, she had her trademark fierceness, she had on a brand new dress her dad bought her for the occasion. And she knew at the end, after her standing O, she'd be declared the next Oscar-winning star. So she stepped on stage and performed her script. It was about an unpopular, depressed, sexually abused, ridiculed young woman. She later said it was essentially a not-so-sophisticated precursor to Precious. And for the grand finale, she walked over to her imaginary window, delivered her final line, and threw herself to the floor in her character's death. A suicide. As she fell, she felt the emotion in her body radiate across the auditorium. But when she opened up her eyes, the audience was sat in their seats, staring back at her with raised eyebrows, in total silence. Then, out of nowhere, her father stood up from his seat and threw his palms together. There was no declaration of her Oscar-worthiness, just her father's unmistakable cheers echoing around the quiet room. Taraji lost the talented teens pageant show. Tracy came in first place. Fresh off the heels of her talented teen's triumph, Tracy had an idea. She and Henson should attend a performing arts high school like the students in Fame. And there was one in particular in the area called Duke Ellington School of the Arts that Tracy had her eye on. Named after composer Duke Ellington, the school is considered one of the best in DC. It puts as much emphasis on the creative arts as it does academics and requires students to excel in both categories. It would mean surrounding themselves with like-minded people who understood and accepted their ambition and drama. But it was prestigious, which also meant it was tricky to get into. You couldn't just enroll. You had to submit your grades, attend an interview, and perform an audition before the admissions board. So Henson and Tracy decided to perform the monologues they'd written for the pageant. Tracy got in. Henson was rejected. She was completely devastated, humiliated for a second time. Clearly, she didn't have the talent her dad thought she did. Henson says in that moment, she shelved her desire to perform entirely and instead decided to shift all the way over to the left side of her brain. She dove into math and science classes. The inner workings of electronics had always interested her, circuit boards and what have you. 
So in a moment of senior year panic, Henson decided to go to college to become an electrical engineer. Mere months into her first year at Greensboro College in North Carolina, Henson got her first inkling that something was amok. She said on one side of campus, she was thriving, writing and performing her essays in English class and expressing herself through hairstyles and funky outfits. But on the other side of campus, the side that housed all the math and science buildings, Henson was an outcast. Her glittery buttons stood out against a haze of gray. Then she got some cold, hard news. She'd failed pre-calculus. The class intended to prepare her for all the real math courses she'd have to take throughout her four years. It was yet another blow. Henson called her father defeated and bawling. She said, Dad, I failed. He said, good. She was confused. What do you mean good? He told her she had to fall flat on her face in order for the universe to steer her back in the right direction. What she was meant to do with her life had been clear to him since she was five years old. She was meant to be an actor. He told her to leave North Carolina, come back to Washington and apply to the theater program at Howard, a top-tier, historically black university located in the heart of D.C. So that's exactly what she did. Henson traveled back to her hometown and was accepted into the alma mater of Felicia Rashad and Debbie Allen. When she got back to D.C., Henson moved into the basement of her father and stepmother's house. Now, she had debt from her first college and tuition for her second. So, as she says, she started hustling. Henson turned that basement apartment into a salon, doing the hair and nails of her extended family and friends. $20 could get you looking right for a Saturday night. When she wasn't doing that, she became a singing waitress on the Spirit of Washington dinner barge on the Potomac River, belting out Tina Turner classics between courses. And when she wasn't doing that, she was a receptionist at the Pentagon. Because she enrolled at Howard late into the semester, she was behind in the audition process for its productions. And that year, they were doing Dream Girls. So Henson took a job in the props department, but she really wanted to be on stage after the curtains went up. So she decided to spend a lot of her time around the director, waiting for the crumb of a minor part to fall. And one day, said director announced they needed a woman to play a seamstress who would walk from stage left to stage right. That's it. That was the whole part. Zero dialogue. But Henson volunteered with so much enthusiasm you'd think it was a leading role. And she got the part. Walking across the stage was so simple that they never even rehearsed it. But Henson remembered Debbie Allen as Lydia in the movie Fame. So every night, as she sang on the barge or applied acrylic nails or greeted dignitaries at the Pentagon, she imagined what the seamstress background might be. What was her life like? Why was she walking? Henson said the character was nobody and everybody, but she was somebody to her. So come opening night, she decided to inject the seamstress with one part Debbie Allen and two parts Lucille Ball. She swallowed her nerves and sashayed across the stage. The audience roared with laughter. There are no small roles. Soon Henson went from prop mistress to unofficial understudy for every part. She learned everyone's lines and choreography. So should someone fall ill or drop out, she could fill in at a moment's notice. 
And eventually, that day came. A lead role in the play's opening number backed out, and as the flustered director searched for a replacement, Henson's smiling face popped up front and center. He said, Okay, bring your heels tomorrow and show me what you've got. Henson reached into her bag, pulled out a pair of heels, and said, I've got them right here. She wowed the director with her audition, and Henson landed herself a leading role. The play sold out every night. Everyone in DC came to see the Howard University production of Dream Girls. She was riding a high. known for inviting incredible speakers to its hallowed halls. And one such guest was doing a workshop with the theater program. It was none other than Spike Lee. Henson was completely starstruck. Lee was a titan not only in cinema, but more broadly in the African-American community. So after the workshop, she wrangled her best friend Tracy, and the two of them decided to approach Spike Lee and impress him enough to put them in one of his movies. Well, they didn't get anywhere close to Lee. The best they could do was shove their headshots into the hands of a random member of his entourage. Three weeks later, they got a call from a casting agent in New York saying they wanted Tracy and Henson to fly to New York and be in Spike Lee's latest film, Malcolm X. Henson jumped around the room, stars in a Spike Lee movie. This could pave the way for an Oscar or a Golden Globe. This was the big break opportunity she'd been preparing her whole life to seize. Henson's mother paid $75 for her plane ticket to New York. But when she and Tracy arrived on set, they realized they weren't the co-stars of Malcolm X. They were Malcolm Extras in one scene. Today, Taraji P. Henson can't help but burst out laughing at that story because she had the audacity to think that a headshot on the back of a lackluster resume would get her the starring role in a Spike Lee movie. Of course she was just an extra, but at the time, it was mortifying. Malcolm X wasn't her big break, but it was experience on a movie set around real actors. Back at school, everything was going according to plan. She was working with her theater professors to hone her craft. Henson's rambunctious, outspoken personality is big and often translated to her characters being big. But her teachers taught her to simmer her acting from a hurricane into a quiet storm, to fully inhabit the complexities of a character and convey them even in the still moments. Henson made the Dean's List. She was able to start supporting herself, get out of her dad's basement and rent her own apartment. Then she got a piece of information that would change her life forever. She found out she was pregnant. Henson and her then-boyfriend were surprised by the news. And though their tumultuous relationship wouldn't go the distance, Henson said the baby in her belly was a blessing. Her father was over the moon and invited her over to celebrate. But unfortunately, the support pretty much ended there. Henson's mother was terrified for her daughter, telling her that her career and life were over. Schoolmates whispered in the hallways that she'd probably drop out. Her entire identity had become a headline, a statistic. As Henson herself said, in their eyes, she was yet another single black mother. But Henson was determined that her child was not a roadblock. So she marched up to the director of that year's Howard production and told him not to bench her just because she'd gained a few. So he didn't. And instead, he rewrote her part so the pregnancy made sense within the storyline. At age 24, Henson gave birth to a son named Marcel. 
She says having Marcel laser-focused her dreams because now she had no other choice. But going to school full-time, working and raising her son alone was as hard as her mother warned her it would be. So Henson went to social services to collect food stamps and rent subsidy. Yet, in the spring of 1995, despite the concerns, the whispers, and the sneers, Henson crossed the commencement stage at Howard University with her diploma in one hand and Marcel in the other. Committed to her dreams, but faced with reality, making ends meet quickly and consistently became the priority. Acting was a long game, and one Henson would have to defer for a while if she wanted a roof over her son's head. But that's when her father called her up yet again and gave her some of his signature frank advice. He reminded her that her degree was in acting and movies aren't filmed in DC. He said, how do you expect to catch fish on dry land? She had a cousin living in Los Angeles at the time and unbeknownst to Henson, her father had already made the long distance phone call asking if his daughter could stay there for a while while she made a go of her acting career. It had all been arranged. Henson said she was a 26-year-old single mother with next to no professional acting experience, no prospects for work, no leads that could get her in the room, and no Screen Actors Guild card. In other words, she says she may as well have had least likely to succeed stamped across her forehead. People thought she was crazy. But off she flew to the City of Angels with just $700 to her name and a toddler on her lap. By the time Henson landed at LAX, she'd made a plan and within days had it executed to perfection. She got herself a full-time job at an accounting firm because it was consistent meaning she knew exactly what time she'd get there in the morning and what time she'd clock out in the evening. That allowed her to organize childcare and know exactly when she could schedule acting auditions. But when she told her new co-workers she was in Los Angeles to become an actress, it was an endless parade of scoffs and pursed lips. Who isn't? Hold that thought. We'll be right back. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Three weeks after becoming a West Coaster, Henson found herself a $3,500 beat-up Nissan Sentra and a tiny apartment off the freeway. The car was easy. Securing the apartment involved tears and a plea for the landlord to overlook her mounting credit card debt in favor of throwing a struggling single mother a bone. It worked, but as soon as Henson was handed the keys and she and Marcel sat down in their new kitchen meets living room meets bedroom, she realized she was across the country from her entire support system. And raising her child in an apartment that was nowhere near the caliber of home she had envisioned for her family. The exact same predicament that no doubt plagued her own mother at her age. But if she wanted to improve their situation, she'd have to land herself an agent who could get her enough gigs as an extra that she could earn herself a SAG card. She'd known a manager back in DC who connected her with an agent in LA. And soon, she was standing behind Jonathan Lithgow in Third Rock from the Sun. She pooled her pennies to save the $1,100 union fee required to join SAG until it was official. She was a card-carrying actress. But as it turns out, that was the easy part. Everyone kept telling her she was too old, that the general rule of thumb in Hollywood was that if you hadn't hit your stride by 25, mainly as a woman, you'd be sent out to pasture. But beyond the age problem, Henson weathered an onslaught of other unhelpful feedback as well. It came in the form of three distinct words. Too edgy, too street, and too urban. Which Henson says were all code for black girl from the hood. The only scripts that came her way were for the roles of baby mama or ghetto girl. And even those were far and few between. For two full years, Henson went to auditions and didn't land a single part of substance. Every day on her smoke break at the accounting office where she made $10 an hour, she'd sit alone and cry. In 1997, Henson landed her first role ever a single episode of the sitcom The Parenthood, ironically, playing a teenager. Henson found herself a new agent, one who really understood the plight of a black actress. He got her a handful of other small parts, including Smart Guy, ER, and Saved by the Bell, where Henson says she begged the producers to give her a recurring role, but they turned her down. Soon it became clear that going to auditions and sets while juggling a full-time job wasn't feasible. So Henson quit the accounting firm and instead started substitute teaching. That way, every morning she'd get a call to go to a different school and fill in. And if she had an acting gig that day or had lined up auditions, she could turn down that day's teaching work. It was flexible but the teaching paychecks lost on audition days far outnumbered the few paychecks she got when she landed gigs. So Henson started making her own candles on the shag carpet of her tiny apartment to sell for some extra cash. All the while, a little voice in her head told her, you're 30, you're too old. To continue to learn and cultivate her craft, Henson enrolled in an acting boot camp taught by veteran actor and filmmaker Bill Duke. When one day, Academy Award-nominated director John Singleton stopped by to observe the class. He was putting together the follow-up to his 1991 two-time Oscar-nominated film Boys in the Hood called Baby Boy. 
and wanted a fresh face to play Yvette, the girlfriend of the male lead. So naturally, Henson says every actress in the class fawned all over Singleton, lining up to get his attention. But not her. She remained professional. Serious actors don't gush. And it paid off. John Singleton remembered Henson for that very reason and offered her the part. She would star alongside another new face to hit the big screen, Tyrese Gibson. Prior to Baby Boy, Gibson had made a name for himself as an R&B artist, but now was dipping his toe into acting. Voices from all around Henson's circle kept telling her this was it, finally, her big break. Singleton had the star-making Midas touch, and Taraji P. Henson was next. When Baby Boy hit theaters, it got rave reviews, citing Henson specifically. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars. The film brought in $30 million at the box office, of which Henson was paid $65,000. But that's okay, because a big break leads to even bigger things. Well, at least it did for Tyrese Gibson. Her male co-star's first foray into acting landed him two franchises, Transformers and Fast and Furious. It landed Taraji P. Henson nothing. Not a single movie offer for three years. Seven long years after moving out to Los Angeles to fulfill her dreams and make a better life for her son, Henson had only barely been able to support herself through acting. When she got work, it was sporadic. She was overlooked and underpaid. Casting directors couldn't see her for parts that would ultimately go to white actors, and they had a problem with her D.C. accent. Then, in 2003, she landed a role in a Lifetime series called The Division, alongside an unknown actor named John Hamm, five years before his breakout role in Mad Men. It paid $22,000 per episode, enough to quit substitute teaching altogether, pay off the rest of her student loans, and make a down payment on a house for her and Marcel. As she looked across the view from their new home in Glendale, she realized she could see the accounting company where she had worked when they first moved to LA. In both places, she cried, but for completely different reasons. was making enough money to support herself, but she was still a nobody, and waiting around to be discovered wasn't in her DNA. Nobody comes to Hollywood to make the D-list. She overheard that John Singleton was directing a new movie starring Mark Wahlberg called Four Brothers, an R-rated crime drama set in Detroit, and she convinced Singleton to give her a small part. What she didn't know was that Singleton was also producing an upcoming film called Hustle and Flow, about a Memphis pimp who in the middle of a midlife crisis ventures into the world of hip hop. The lead was Terrence Howard, but they were still looking to fill the role of Sugar, a call girl with a heart of gold. Howard already had an actress in mind to play Sugar, but Singleton sent Henson the script. He told her to look it over and come audition. He thought she'd be perfect. So Henson came in and blew that other actress out of the water. Terrence Howard and the film's director were sold. Her character Sugar sang the chorus in the film's theme song, It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp. And there's a key moment in the movie where Sugar first listens back to the track. And without any dialogue, You can see in her eyes everything she's feeling, hearing her own talent for the first time. 
Hustle and Flow premiered in 2005. It near paralleled Baby Boy, bringing in a decent $20 million at the box office and three and a half stars from Mr. Ebert. And It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Song. So Henson got to perform it live at the 2006 Academy Awards. And it won. That performance and Sugar's scene-stealing moment would eventually pay off. The following years reverted back to Henson's usual pattern. They were slow, really slow. She landed a single episode of CSI and a handful of other small roles. By 2008, she was almost 40 years old. And she says while the men of Hollywood still land major roles well into their 60s, a woman over 40 becoming a huge star is almost unheard of, especially a woman of color. So one Saturday afternoon, Henson decided to throw a yard sale, selling some of her shoes and dresses for some extra funds, when her manager called. He said there was an audition for a David Fincher movie, and the casting director asked her to come in and read for a part. The film was called The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, starring Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett. But Henson said, no thanks. She'd already sent out the flyers for her garage sale. And realistically, she knew it was probably just a runaround the casting people covering their bases in the unlikely event that one of the real stars they'd already hired backed out. She'd been on a million of these auditions before, where she'd pour her heart out in front of uninterested strangers just looking to check a box. It was exhausting and just not worth it anymore. So she was having her yard sale. But her agent insisted so Henson begrudgingly postponed her Saturday plans for a couple hours and went to the audition. She got to the studio angry, prepared to see every black actress in Hollywood vying for the part. But there was no one, just David Fincher and one casting director. They really did want her and her alone. They told her she was fantastic in Hustle and Flow, and they knew she was perfect for the role of Queenie, the adoptive mother of Brad Pitt's character, who ages 50 years throughout the film. Henson couldn't believe it. Curious indeed. Henson was third on the call sheet, and yet, she was offered less than 2% of her co-star's salaries. The studio said they'd pay her in the low six figures. But over the three months they'd be filming in New Orleans, she'd have to pay her accommodations herself out of her salary. Take it or leave it. As she says in her memoir, the fact is there are way more talented black actresses than there are intelligent, meaningful roles for them to play. So they're continuously charged with diving for scraps, lest they starve. If she turned it down on principle, she'd be replaced in a heartbeat. So Henson says she took her check, booked herself a room at the New Orleans Embassy Suites, and got to work. In 2008, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button hit theaters. It brought in $335 million at the box office. One morning at 5 a.m., Henson was awoken by an incoherent phone call from her agent. She couldn't understand much on the other end, but she did make out the word television. So she flicked on her TV and there, the 81st annual Academy Award nominations had just been released. Benjamin Button had received a whopping 13 nominations, the most of any film that year. 
And sure enough, under the category Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role was the name Taraji P. Henson. Henson ran around in circles, mime-screaming, trying not to wake up her son. It was a dream come true. That night, at the 2009 Academy Awards, Henson lost. So did Brad Pitt and David Fincher. It was a huge disappointment. But Henson reminded herself that while awards open doors, they aren't the end game of a passionate person. Except, Henson was surprised to find that after the Oscar chatter died down, doors weren't swinging open. In fact, nobody was calling. Nobody except Tyler Perry. Perry called to ask how she was doing after the loss, and also to offer her a role. But not just any role, a lead role in his 2009 film, I Can Do Bad All By Myself. Front and center on the poster, number one on the call sheet, and most importantly, paid a leading role salary. Perry's philosophy is to bolster talented Black actors, directors, producers, and crew members who are often overlooked and underpaid. And Henson fit that criteria to a T. Henson has been asked why, after an Academy Award nomination, she would choose for her next film to be a broad comedy. To which she says, well, it was the only one she was offered and it would become the most important role of her life. The salary for that role raised her rate significantly, meaning the baseline pay at which she could start all future negotiations. It was thanks to Perry, not an Academy Award nomination, that she would never have to take it or leave it and accept crumbs from a studio again. Taraji P. Henson would go on to land films like Karate Kid, What Men Want, and the Academy Award-nominated Hidden Figures, all of which led to Empire, a television show that would earn Henson a Golden Globe Award and two Emmy nominations for an iconic character she says she modeled off her no-nonsense father. Fame costs. And right here is where you start paying. In sweat because it's hard out here for a black woman in Hollywood. But Taraji P. Henson smashed through that glass ceiling by being one tough cookie. Powerful themes in Taraji's story, one in particular stands out. There are no small roles. There was a lot of wisdom in that short sentence. Taraji Henson put her heart and soul into every single opportunity she was given, even if it was just walking across a stage without a single line of dialogue. There are no small roles in life because every chance is a learning opportunity. You get a crash course in the basics. You get to hone your craft. You get to observe other professionals. You get to make valuable connections. Small opportunities are the stepping stones of a career. And you can't GPS your way to the big opportunity without following the stepping stones. In any given moment, we all have two options. Keep going or quit. That's why you have to recalibrate the way you look at tiny opportunities. Actor Steve Suskind once said, There are no small roles, only short days. That's an important insight. You can be insulted, or you can be thankful to be given another opportunity that inches you closer to your dream. Attitude is everything. Taraji had that attitude. Even when she had to drag herself to the David Fincher casting expecting yet another hopeless audition for yet another small role, she goes anyway. That choice to keep going 
led to an Academy Award nomination, which led to a meeting with Tyler Perry, which would eventually lead to her career-defining role in Empire. Taraji Henson was 45 when that happened. It's not supposed to be easy. No one knows how many small roles it will take to land a dream, or how many stepping stones there are between you and your goal. But what if everything you're going through is preparing you for what you asked for? Never, ever give up. Taraji P. Henson, Black Entertainment Television Awards, 6. Most Best Actress BET Awards in History, 6. Golden Globe Awards, 1. Oscar nominations, 1. Emmy nominations, 3. Star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, 2019. The Name's Cookie. Ask About Me. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. Engineer, Keith Oman. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophe pod. If you're interested in advertising on our show, click advertise with us on our site. We regret to inform you this series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm being completely honest now, okay? Homelessness makes me uncomfortable. But then I think, at least it's not sleeping on the sidewalk with everything I own uncomfortable. Don't let homelessness assumptions get in the way of homelessness solutions. Go to canadacandoit.ca. Help the Canadian Alliance to end homelessness.